I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That poem is titled Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. The Ozymandias the poem refers to is the Hellenized version of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. He was the third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty of Egypt and is often regarded as the greatest, most celebrated, and most powerful pharaoh to have ever lived. After his death over 3,200 years ago, he was mummified and entombed in the Valley of Kings, where he remained untouched until 1974, when he was found by archaeologists. The mummy's condition was rapidly deteriorating, and the archaeologists deemed it necessary to bring the corpse to Paris to study and to ensure its preservation. During this process, a strange, ridiculous, bureaucratic consideration had to be carried out. Egyptian law required all people leaving the country, even corpses, to have a passport. So an archaeologist wrote up a passport for a man who had died well over 3,000 years ago. For Ramses's occupation, the archaeologist scrawled down, King. A photographer took the mummy's picture and the passport was printed out. With this strange bureaucratic ritual finished, the mummy was taken to Paris, where it was received at the airport with full military honors, as is tradition for any visiting royalty. The royal mummy was then studied, preserved, and then returned to the Egyptian National Museum, where it remains to this day. While Ramses II was treated like royalty, not all mummies met a fate befitting a king. This is their story, as well as a story about respect, desecration, and the complicated relationship we have with the dead. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. Episode 42, The Great Grave Robbery. It's often hard to realize just how ancient ancient Egypt really was. For some perspective, at the same time that the Great Pyramids of Giza were being constructed, woolly mammoths still walked the earth. Egyptian civilization had a tremendous impact on human history due to its culture and science, but most importantly its location as a causeway between the three great continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Egypt occupies a special location between important historical and geographic regions. Egypt isn't easily placed within Africa or Asia or within the East or the West, therefore a lot of people claim Egypt as their past. It seems as if Egypt is everyone's past at the same time. Europe's fascination with Egypt's ancient society goes back to classical Greece, but it saw a massive resurgence after Napoleon Bonaparte's military campaign in Egypt. 
While the French army was eventually pushed back by the Ottoman Empire's forces, the French made many historic discoveries like the Rosetta Stone while they were there. This opened up an entire new field of study called Egyptology. It also rekindled an interest in ancient Egypt throughout Europe. By the early 19th century, this interest had turned into an obsession. Right now, I'd like you to do me a favor. I want you to imagine yourself as an Egyptian 4,000 years ago. You live in one of the villages in the Nile River Delta, just outside the city. On clear days, you can just make out the tips of the Great Pyramids, an ever-present reminder of the power and the prestige of the Egyptian hierarchy. You and your rather large family make a living from farming, as many others do in the Delta. However, you relish your family's fairly frequent trips into the city. You have hopes and dreams like everyone else in your community. Favorite color, pet peeves, a first crush. But one day, you fall ill. A sudden fever. You get sick. And you don't get better. An all-too-common tragedy in that day and age. You have died. But your story is far, far from over. Your grief-stricken family quickly retrieves funds and transports your corpse to be mummified. Once there, your organs are removed and placed in sealed jars. Young acolytes wash your body with spices, wine, and oil. The process is thorough and costly, but hey, this is the afterlife we're talking about. Eventually, your brain is removed via your nose. Only one organ remains, your heart, where it was believed your mind and soul reside. After this process, you are laid down amongst other soon-to-be mummies, and there you remain until the natural salt dehydrated your body. After 70 days, almost any trace of moisture is now gone from your body. Your skin shriveled, now taut against many of your bones. At this point, you are wrapped in soaked linen that serves both a waterproofing and antimicrobial purpose. Before they finish wrapping you, your favorite beaded bracelet your most prized possession, is wrapped in the linens with you. Your parents believe you'd enjoy having it in the afterlife. Once you are wrapped in linens, you are returned to your family, who has prepared a vaguely human-shaped terracotta coffin. Your mother, thinking she was over the grief of your death months ago, realizes that she is not. Other members of your family have painted inscriptions on the coffin, wishing you a safe journey into the afterlife. Your father wonders if he paid enough to ensure that your voyage to the afterlife goes smoothly. You're now carried by your family to the shaft tomb where all of your ancestors had been placed for generations. Your coffin is lifted to a ledge in the masonry and set down. Your family says some final words and then leaves, doing their best to try and move on. They will never truly succeed. You remain on that ledge, in that tomb. For years, only interrupted by occasional small rodents and deep tremors. A few years go by before a coffin containing your mummified cousin is brought in and placed on a ledge below yours. Another year passes and your mummified father is brought in. His coffin is placed on the ledge next to yours. This process repeats for years, then decades, then generations, until the tomb is completely filled with your entire mummified family. 
Eventually, one of your ancestors, technically your great-great-grandnephew, has the crowded tomb enclosed for good, hopefully keeping the mummies of his family from being disturbed and ensuring proper transference to the afterlife, where he could hopefully meet them all one day. You and generations of your mummified family remain in that dusty tomb, blocked out from the outside world for thousands of years, while ice ages and famines and wars affect entire portions of the globe, and while empires rise and fall, you all remain in this hidden tomb, shrouded in darkness and silence. Thirty-eight centuries since your death, your coffin finally rattles as the door of the tomb is destroyed. Above, Egyptian rebels are trying to take back their capital from Napoleon's French forces. A bomb going off near the sealed entrance is what shattered the tomb's sealed door. Egyptian resistance fighters armed with muskets sprint down the stairs into the tomb, eager for cover against the French artillery. One of the rebels notices the mummies, but pays little attention. At this point, mummies and hidden tombs were all over Egypt, as generation upon generation upon generation of ancient Egyptians carefully stored their dead all over the city. The soldiers soon left the tomb to advance towards the French position. A few months later, some curious children wander into the tomb and try to open up one of the coffins to no avail. Nearly a year later, an English archaeologist enters the tomb and takes some notes. He soon realizes the poorer quality of the coffins and decides to look for some more prestigious sarcophagi. Three years pass. Two English tomb raiders enter the tunnel and begin breaking open the coffins of your ancestors with a small hammer. They rummage through the ancient coffins and loot anything of value. The grave robbers eventually get to you. They break the terracotta coffin open and look disappointed when they fail to find anything worth taking. Your wrapped corpse now lies on the floor amongst the corpses of your family and broken pieces of your family's ancient coffins. After a few months of laying amongst your family and rubble on the ground, some young Egyptian men enter and begin carrying your family's corpses out. Eventually, you too are carried out into the light. Your corpse is placed in a row alongside all of the other mummified corpses of your greater family. All of the mummies were in various degrees of decay. Your corpse is now loaded onto a cart, along with other mummies in similar shape. Your sister is the only member of your family you know that is placed on the cart with you. The horse-drawn cart bounces along the bumpy road on the way to the market. As it does, cracks of mummified flesh dislodge from the corpses inside the linens. Eventually, the cart arrives. You are unloaded and a piece of paper is attached to you. A price tag. In the market on the side of the large road, you are propped up against a wall alongside about a dozen or so other mummies like you. Within a few hours, a businessman in fine clothing, obviously out of his element, buys the mummy to your left. The next day, a man comes and haggles, but ends up leaving. A day or two passes before a seedy-looking Englishman with a large beard offers to buy every single mummy the tomb robber is selling. The Egyptian salesman immediately accepts. You and members of your mummified family are loaded onto a cart and then a boat in the Egyptian harbor. As the mummies are being loaded, some break in half within their linens. The Englishman shouts out at the Egyptian dock workers, urging them to be more careful. 
you leave the continent you were born on for the first and last time. As days pass, the mummies in the cargo hold rock with the sea. A sudden storm causes some mummies to flip, their linens becoming drenched with water. You, however, manage to stay fairly dry. Eventually, you and the other mummies arrive in a port in the British Isles. You're unloaded and placed in an ornate coffin. An incredibly wealthy businessman purchases you and takes you to his estate. Invitations are sent out. A luxurious event, it's called. A party devoted to the unwrapping of ancient Egyptian royalty. Macabre fascination enthralls the lucky few that get their invitations. You wait within the exquisite coffin, while the coffin made for you by your family thousands of years ago lies in a plundered tomb 2,500 miles away. It is now the day of the party, where revealing your mummified body is the main event. Minor barons and countesses arrive in carriages, the men adorned in frock coats and top hats, the women in dazzling bustled dresses and layered corsets. They're greeted by servants at the manor's entrance. A luscious dinner is served. The guests are enraptured by the host's knowledge of ancient Egypt. He explains that the daring explorer who provided the mummy ensured him that it was a pharaoh of some sort. The truth matters little here. It was lost somewhere along the way, somewhere along the strange journey through thousands of years and thousands of miles where you, an Egyptian laborer, ended up on an Englishman's billiards table. The guests eat up their food and the lies with delight. Soon, it's the main event. Most guests are downright giddy at this point. You still remain there, shrouded in darkness. Everyone gathers around the coffin on the table. The host warns of spirits and ancient Egyptian curses. These too are lies, but at least he isn't playing them off as historical, and most of the room knew they would be better suited around a campfire. And now for the main event. The coffin is open to reveal you there, still in your linens. Oohs and ahs abound. Two burly servants in vests carefully lift you out of the coffin and place you on the table. Whispers and questions bounce across the guests. The host carefully cuts the ancient linens around your feet and then begins the long process of unwrapping your mummified corpse. After about a minute, both of your shriveled feet are revealed to gasps. The host pauses for effect and then continues. Victorian women hold handkerchiefs to their chest and sometimes look away as the host continues to remove the linens from your corpse, now revealing bony knees covered in taut skin. The unwrapping continues, revealing your hip bone. Some men step up to get a closer look. One makes a joke about the lack of genitals. Now, with the help of his servants, the host continues unwrapping as waves of morbid fascination sweep over the guests. Your rib bones are now visible, sunken skin where your internal organs used to be. The unwrapping continues. A small beaded bracelet is unraveled with the linens. The host holds up the fragile little bracelet and insists that it's some royal artifact. He gives it to his wife as a gift. The guests now, riled with anticipation, stand up for a closer look as your head is about to be revealed. Everyone leans in as your jaw is unwrapped, revealing a contorted mouth still open. At this point, a woman leaves, feeling like she's watching something she shouldn't. Eventually, the rest of your face, with strangely peaceful closed eyes, 
is revealed. The host removes the last of the linens and places them on a pile on the floor as the guests stare at your face in amazement. Everyone surrounding your mummified corpse marvels and asks questions about you and receives wrong answers. You desperately want to leap up from the coffin and tell these strangers what they're doing is wrong and to tell them who you really were. But you can't. The partygoers continue drinking and marveling at your ancient body long into the evening. After the party, your mummified corpse remains there, on the billiards table, for nearly a week. The Englishman who owns the manor, and still technically owns your corpse, would sometimes examine you for some time, occasionally bringing in more friends to take a look. But as time passes, he doesn't know what to do with you. After some deliberation, he orders his servants to bury you out back in an unmarked grave, which is where you remain, finally decomposing. Your ultimate destination after a journey involving ancient rituals, tomb raiders, charlatans, and British aristocrats, it led you here, thousands of years after your death, thousands of miles from home. How do you feel right now, after going on that weird little trip? Feels strange, right? A little unsettling? Or perhaps you thought, eh, it's just a body, who cares? Well, many mummies met far worse fates. Egyptomania made mummy unwrapping parties all the rage in Victorian England, but some mummies faced circumstances and ultimate fates that were far, far worse. Some mummies were made into a special paper, while others were burned as fuel. Ancient mummies were so common in Egypt that many were taken from tombs to be used as fertilizer for crops and gardens. In England, real mummies were used as props for plays, as well as displayed in houses for years. Mummies also played a part in interior decorating as a special paint. The color mummy brown was created by grinding up mummies for their unique pigment. If you think grinding up bodies to color your walls sounds strange, it gets stranger. Mummies were also ground up and used as medicine. Many Europeans believed that mummies contained healing and age-reversing effects. While these claims were obviously false, it didn't stop many Europeans from technically becoming cannibals. While medieval Europeans didn't practice intense mummification rituals like the Egyptians did, Body parts of saints had incredible value and were frequently stored in Catholic churches where they often became tourist attractions. Because of this, when Joan of Arc was burned at the stake in 1493, her body was burned a second time. Afterwards, her executioners threw her ashes into the river. They did this to avoid anyone taking her body parts as potential religious relics. Despite this, a jar labeled Remains Found Under the Stake of Joan of Arc, the Virgin of Orleans, turned up in the attic of a Paris pharmacy. It was recognized by the church as genuine and later put on display in a museum run by the Archdiocese of Tours. However, in 2007, tests conducted by forensic scientists revealed that the contents of the jar predated Joan of Arc by thousands of years. They were actually a human rib, and a cat femur bone, both from ancient Egyptian mummies. Whether it be for unwrapping parties, paper, mummy brown paint, or medicine, 
mummies were in high demand in Europe in the 1800s. Because of this, an industry formed around locating, transporting, and selling mummies all throughout Europe. These industries were so successful that many people began selling fake mummies that were often simply recently dug up peasants or mummified slaves. For various reasons, including this new influx of fake mummies, Egyptomania and the desire for ancient mummies slowly died off. But Egyptomania and Europe's strange desire for ancient mummified corpses reveals a strange thing about how we treat our dead. Oftentimes, there's a period of mourning after someone dies, where it's almost taboo to say anything bad about them. But then that period ends, and people are more free to talk about the deceased any way they please. And eventually, people can say essentially anything they want about the dead, writing books or harsh opinion pieces without repercussions. So maybe that logic applied over a very long period of time explains the mass desecration of corpses in Egypt. They had simply been dead too long for it to be truly viewed as immoral. Or maybe we can chalk it up to just general hypocrisy, where Europeans desecrate ancient burial sites while they maintain strict punishment for desecration of local graveyards. But whatever the case may be, those mummies face the same fate we all do. In the end, our corpses return to the earth and become part of the world again. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know how it goes. Maybe becoming brown paint that now covers a room in an aging Victorian home is somehow better than simply rotting in a casket six feet underground. Or maybe that's being too kind and ignoring the definition of desecration. After all, mummies are now scary monsters to us, a common trope of the horror genre. Maybe they haunt our novel pages and our silver screens because we desecrated their tombs all those years ago. Our collective guilt turning the Egyptian mummy into a vengeful monster. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you have thoughts about this episode or any other episode, you can share them on Historium's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. If you would like to support the show, you can do so on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And for $5 a month, you can gain access to a bonus episode each and every month. You can find the link to my Patreon in the show notes of this episode. As always... Thanks for listening.